Um, and I don't mean you missed out, because you can't come behind any good thing if you've inherited God. And listen, listen guys, it's a real simple thing. I explain lots of things, and I get into lots of detail. And it can be like a whirlwind sometimes. But I want to tell you, out of everything I just said, you have God in you. And you have the Holy Spirit. I encourage you when you leave tonight, if you didn't think you tracked with everything, ask God what it means that you've inherited God. Yes. Tell God, that sounds like a very lofty thought, but that you know it's true. How many in here agree we inherited God? Yes. I think we all agree we inherited God. So man, let's tonight, if I forget to pray on behalf of all of us, when you leave here tonight, in your own time with God, ask God to unpack that for you. Say, Lord, I have a, a head knowledge of what it means. I mean, I read that and I agree that has to be the truth. But Lord, that's a very lofty thing. Please unpack to me what it means that I've inherited God, that I've inherited all of you. He didn't just give you a little piece. He emptied everything he has in himself out onto us through his Holy Spirit. And so what does it mean, Lord, that I've inherited all of you and I have all of you right now, even in this mortal body? What's it, what's it like, God, when you walk in the earth? How do you see things? What are you thinking when you walk in the earth? Father, I know you created me to share with you and your thoughts. I know you came to open blind eyes. That means that you came to give me your eyes so I could see things the way you see it. So that I could declare the beginning from the end. That's right. The end from the beginning. That's right. Right? And just ask God to unpack that for you. He wants to. He wants nothing more than for you to know what it means that you're a co-heir with him. Yes. A co-heir. And you could just ask him. It's that simple. Faith is not as hard as we've made it. The gospel yes. is not as hard as we made it. It's a childlike thing. Jesus said, unless you become as little children. And so, man, just tell God. Hey, I just want to know. Hallelujah. He'll show you. He'll tell you. And you'll be blessed. All right. That's what the people of my church call the, the message before the message. Did you record that, Kenneth? Yes, I'm just going to stick with yours if that's okay. So yes, I don't have to go get that. Thank you, brother. I love I broke, this guy. I broke it into two parts, so you can. Okay, hallelujah. <laughs> if I ever need to do a deposition with, hopefully I don't, I will come to you. Right. Although recently I realized I do lots of marriage counseling. I don't make none of those people sign a disclaimer. <laughs> people that are married can get upset, man, if that doesn't go right. And then they want to look for somebody to blame. And that could be you if you're the pastor. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you got to have an incorruptible life to do that, you know, because people want to blame you for their marital problems. Hallelujah. <laughs> I'm joking. God has great success with marriages. Okay. i got like a million messages here. Gregory, you said that you write out your messages. Kind of like me. Um... I started uploading, since I spent so much time writing them out, I started uploading them to my website. And I found that it's greatly blessed, like ministers everywhere and other pastors. And so um, putting it in some type of book form or other form, if you ever feel that desire, um, it could be a great blessing. Because I know the effort that goes into putting together the messages. You know, when you were talking, I felt like we were of one spirit. Because I like to also write mine out um, and have them there. Glory to God. Um, thank you, guys. I can't say thank you to you two enough. As you guys already know, these people are gold. Yeah. Um, and they have just been so kind to me and loved me and encouraged me. Um, and I feel like I've gotten the prophet's reward just by hanging out with them. And I don't mean that I'm the prophet. I mean that these guys are. And the reward that a prophet has to give you is the word that he speaks. Right? And these guys, man, have just encouraged me in the word of life. And just reminded me of what it means to be purged from death and to be purged from the sin that wounded us with death. You've been sanctified from death. I know we've been taught we've been sanctified from sin, and that's true. But we seem to struggle to connect sin and death. Sin and death are synonymous. The wages of sin is what? Death. death. And so when we think about being sanctified from sin, 
we want to make the transition where we're not just busy thinking, oh, we've been cleansed from our bad behavior. Because the bad behavior is just the fruit of death. It's not the root. And so if you could make the connection that you've been sanctified from the death that you see in this world, what will happen is your conscience will be purged from death. And you'll start finding your flesh healed and put to rest. And you'll find the works of the flesh fall off of your life. And you'll find it happening by God's doing and not your own. And you'll be like the person in the parable of the sower sowing the seed, right? Where you wake up day and night and you wake up one day to a gigantic crop, yet you know not how it's there. I promise you, if you wake up to a crop that you spend a bunch of sweating to bring forth, that ain't a crop from God. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Right? Sanctified from death. So thank you guys so much. I hope you know your family, your family to all the people in the church, all you guys. Way back when, Gregory, you weren't here last night. Man, I love you. Um, The Grace United conferences, from the first time I saw you, I can just see the Father in you. When I see your face, I feel comfort. I feel love. I feel a shepherd. And uh, man, you don't know it, but your church, Healing Grace and Grace United, has a sentimental place in my heart. This place has a sentimental place in my heart because of all you guys, Victoria, Kenneth, all you guys in the church here. Um, so thank you so much for what you guys do here to, to preach the gospel of grace and to, to stand and boldly deca- declare Christ crucified. Um, you're a great encouragement to me and all the other people in the earth that are believing on Jesus and him and his life and Christ crucified. So thank you guys so much. Thank you um, for not giving up. Yeah, 35 years, man. Listen, and the sabbatical, that may have been a word from the Lord. That was a word from <laughs> That might have been a word of knowledge. <laughs> Glory to God. Thank you, Father, for your, your love for us. Thank you, Lord, that you feel the most loved, not when we do for you, but when we see what you've done for us. Thank you, Father, that... Uh, It's your good pleasure to make yourself real to us. It's your good pleasure to manifest yourself in our midst. We thank you that you're here with us, even in us. Lord, let us put you clearly on display in the midst of this place, in the midst of all our eyes, that we might have our eyes completely opened to the glory of your love for us, to the glory of your uh, passion for our lives, that we could be rooted and grounded in your love. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, uh, Holy Spirit that uh, you are in our hearts, interceding, guiding us into the truth, the truth about God, the truth that was revealed in the face of Jesus. Hallelujah. Glory to God. We didn't say it yet, I don't think, tonight. Maybe we did. I'm kind of forgetful. Um, But I have this kind of arrangement with the people in our church. They don't get offended when I preach for a long time, and sometimes I do. And I don't get offended if they like Popeye, and they've had all they can stand, they can't stand no more. And they just got to go. I get it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So there's no shame. You ain't got to like try to see if kind of walk around the backyard and, and get, out, get out the back way. Yeah. Listen, man, if you feel saturated and you like, I, I can't take no more. Man, glory to God. Thank you for being here with me. And I am not like, oh, they must not love God. <laughs> no, no, no. Your love for God is not determined by how long of a message you can sit through. Right? And so you guys don't be offended by me if I preach, and I won't be offended by you if you got a checkout. Oh, is, thank you. Is that a deal? <laughs> is, that, is that fair? Yes. All right. Glory to God. You know, the, the most important thing in all of our lives, all of us, is, is, is what we believe about God and our history with God. That's the most important thing in all of our lives. It's a real simple thing, actually. We make it real complicated because we're real smart. How many of you know how smart we are and how complicated we can make it, right? Um, Especially in the information age. I tell the Lord, I would have been much happier in the first century. No air conditioning, none of that, but no internet, none of that. We didn't have to have the video cameras. We didn't have to record everything. I can't stand sitting in front of the, the camera. I can't stand it. And so, man... Um, I, I think I'm more suited for the first century, but um, everything that 
can cause our lives to flourish is found in what we believe about God and our lives with God. And not just our lives personally, but mankind. Because we're humans, right? Every good thing that came out of Jesus, every beautiful thing that came out of Jesus, we all love what came out of Jesus, don't we? Mm -hmm. We all want that to come out of us, don't we? The problem is we struggle to see how it came out of Jesus. And I promise it didn't come out of Jesus because the Father wrote it up on a wall and said, you should do that. It came out of Jesus because of the revelation he had of who the Father was and the love that was in the Father's heart for him. It came out of his knowing of God and their history together and who God was and how God would be and how God got down, how God behaved himself. So that's the most important thing. And we can even see this in our lives with people. You know, when we, when we have relationships as we walk through this earth, what we believe about the people we have relationships with and what we believe about our history with them shapes the way we interact with them. Yeah. If we got a jaded history with someone, a history where there's lots of pain and abuse and failure and all those kinds of things, listen, it can malign the image we have of them in our hearts. It can create a caricature of them. In our hearts. You guys know what a caricature is? Mm -hmm. Down in New Orleans, they have these artists. And you go and sit down, and they paint a picture of you. And the picture resembles you, but it ain't really you. You're kind of mangled, right? They make fun of some of your features. Uh, features and blow them up. And so you can tell that it's you, but it looks all weird and mangled. And so when we have a jaded history with people, when there's pain, abuse, failures, what it can do is it can mangle the image of the people in our hearts, and it can create a caricature in our hearts of them, where it, it bears a resemblance to, to them. But it's not according to the truth, really, of who they are. And then that influences the way we interact with them. It shapes our relationship with them, even if we don't realize it. Yeah. It's kind of like PTSD. I do a lot of counseling with PTSD, people with PTSD. And the, the idea with the PTSD is you encounter something very traumatic. And then that trauma hovers around. And it gets triggered sometimes. And it goes forward with you in your life. And it, it rises up in different times of your life when you encounter trigger points. And so it affects you in your life as you go forward. And like I said earlier, I do a lot of marital and relational counseling. I do a lot of that. I spend a lot of time doing that. And I can tell you, 99.9% .9 of all the problems that I encounter in the relationships is because the image they have of each other has gotten mangled in their hearts. There's been hurt, there's been pain, and then that pain and that hurt came and painted a picture of each of them in the other's heart. And now they start relating to one another based on a picture that isn't true. Yeah. And they're not even really having a relationship with each other. They're having a relationship with this caricature. Yeah. And they don't know it. And I'll tell you what, they think that I'm like some oracle. And I'm like, I'm nobody. I'm just letting God discern both of your hearts. And what God does is he plops both of their hearts out on the table so they can both see each other accurately again. And do you know what it does? It brings great healing. And that caricature that was in their hearts of each other gets ripped up and torn up and thrown in the garbage. And they start to know each other according to the truth again. And that's the majority of everything that I do. We're just going to let the Spirit interpret both of you. You know, God's good at interpreting man for woman. He is. You know what else? God's good at interpreting woman for man. And you know what? Men struggle to interpret woman properly. You know why? Because they're a man. And you know what? Women also struggle to interpret man properly. You know why? Because they're a woman. But God knows all things. And so many times there's just a miscommunication. And then there's pain because of the miscommunication and hurt. And then we, we hold that hurt to their account. And we start relating to them based on the hurt we felt in our lives with them. And we don't realize it's there. And it flares up. And so most of the things I do is I plop their hearts out on the table and I show each of them who they really are. And in the places where they felt there was the most pain, the most hurt, the most failure, in those places, I come and show them what was really in the other one's heart. And I come and show them how what was really in the other one's heart was to only be good to them, to only love them, to never fail them, to only get it right for them. But they just messed it. 
And when they can see the love that was really in the person's heart, it heals them. And they realize that they just love me. They just love me. And it becomes okay. You know, Jesus manifested in the earth, in the flesh, as wonderful counselor. In the same way about, I just described with relationships between people and between men and women, it's the same way um, with God. Mankind has a history with God. We got a long history with God. And we all got thoughts about our history with God. I don't know if you guys realize it. And our thoughts about our history with God have been shaped. And the question is, what shaped them? Is it wonderful counselor? Is that what shaped our view? Because I promise you, what we think about our history with God will shape our lives with God. It will shape the way we interact with Him. It will shape the way we talk with Him. It will shape the way we get down with Him. Right? It will shape the way we think He gets down with us. And if the most important thing is what we believe about God and our history with God, if that's the thing Jesus knew the most, was the love of the Father, mm. then, man, we don't want to have a caricature of God in our hearts. And I promise you, the world has painted a caricature of God in the earth. The sin and death that entered the earth painted a caricature of God in mankind's history with God. And it painted a caricature in the earth and tried to plant that caricature in all of our hearts so that it could shape and influence the way we interact with God as we walk in this world. Now Jesus comes as wonderful counselor to discern the heart of God for us so we could see what was really in his heart in some deeply painful moments. Mankind has had some very painful moments in this earth. And God was there. And what we think about those moments have a profound impact on us. As we just talked about the profound impact it had on Jesus when he was feeling the pain of death at the cross. What he felt about the Father is what secured him in that place. Right? And so Jesus comes as wonderful counselor. And just like I discern the heart of the, the wife and the husband, Jesus come to discern the heart of God and to discern our hearts for us and what we think about God and how everything has gone down with God. So the image of God can be restored in our hearts. You guys know Ezekiel said that God said in Ezekiel that he would have to sanctify his name in the earth. You ever wondered why would God's name have to be sanctified? I mean, why would God's name need to be sanctified? I mean, I thought about that for a while. I thought, that's strange. God needs to be sanctified? How does that work? Right? And so Jesus came to sanctify the name of God in all of our hearts. And so I want to look at some verses that, that reference some of mankind's painful history. And I want to plop God's heart out on the table in light of those painful moments and just bring out what was really in God's heart in light of what we concluded what was in God's heart. Right? So we can look at Isaiah 54. Glory to God. Famous verses. Everybody knows these verses, right? I love talking about famous verses because everybody already knows what they mean. And I just love taking them and showing you, I don't know if they mean what you think they mean. Because <laughs> that's what God did to me. <laughs> Who told you, Greg? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I did. And I'm real smart, don't you know? <laughs> that's when you realize, no, 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 no. There's one who's smart. It's God. There's one who knows. It's God. There's no shame in not knowing. That's the greatest right. place you could be is realizing, I don't know anything. And in fact, the beginning of wisdom is to come to the place where you say, I don't know anything. But I know him who knows. That's and right. let me start talking with him. Everything began for me when God confronted me in the backyard when I was cussing God and telling him that his gospel stunk. And I used uh, other words, but to spare some of you all, because I don't know what some of you all feel like that, I don't want you to stumble. To get a character. Yeah. I don't want some of you to stumble over my poor language and miss everything else that I said. But I had it out with God. I told him his gospel stunk. And I'd already gone to Bible college. A Bible college, many people would say, is top notch. And I won't leave, I'll leave that name out of my mouth. Um, because I've learned it was more about what was in me than what happened at that Bible college. We want to blame somebody else. You ever notice that? God's like, Greg, the only reason you went that way is because what was already in you. <laughs> oh, no, don't say that. Um, <laughs> oh, glory to God. But you, you, you want it to be like Job where God comes down out of a whirlwind. That's what he did with me. And who is it that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Who is it that has attributed the death in the earth and the death that come upon them to me? 
Who is it that's darkened the truth about who I am? By scapegoating me for the death that's in the earth and the death that's manifested in the earth. Who is it that has done that? That's what God said to me when I told him his gospel stunk. He said, you're right, Greg. What you're believing does stink because it's not the gospel. And I already gone to Bible college for a long time and I thought I knew something, don't you know? <laughs> and so it became a very painful process. Because you know what God told me? I, I, I already had a whole lot of messages written and preached and all that. You know what he come and told me? Take everything you think you know and throw it in the garbage. Yeah. Oh, but I thought what I had was so valuable, Lord. No, no, throw it in the garbage. Because unless you get rid of all of it, you ain't going to see what I'm trying to show you. So Isaiah 54, sing, O barren, thou that did not bear, break forth into seeking and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes, for thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left. And thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles, and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame. For thou shalt forget the shame of your youth, and shall not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. For thy maker is thy husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. For the Lord has called you as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth, when thou was refused, saith thy God. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. Now real quick, it's talking about, God's talking about his promise to make Israel fruitful. He's talking about the promise that he made to them and that his promise wasn't made void. But he's also talking to mankind about his promise to make mankind fruitful. Because God first promised Adam that he would decorate Adam in the fruit of his life. And we see that promise reaffirmed through Abraham when God promised Abraham that he would make him exceedingly fruitful. So God promised mankind that he would make us exceedingly fruitful. He promised that he would decorate us in the fruit of his life. And that's what he's talking about in these verses. Israel was always used as a picture to teach something to all of mankind. It was never just talking about one nation. That's why God says you were supposed to be a nation of kings and priests to the world. You were supposed to teach the world about me. And so God, you was using Israel to try to teach mankind something. So God promised Israel to make them exceedingly fruitful. And he was using Israel to reaffirm his original promise from the garden that he would make us exceedingly fruitful. And that's what Isaiah is talking about there. So I love this part. Sing ye that were barren, for your maker is your husband. Now, barren speaks of not bearing the fruit of God's life. That's what barren means. Barrenness speaks of not being impregnated with the incorruptible seed of God's life. And because you haven't been impregnated with the seed of his life, you're not bearing his peace and his love and his joy and his boldness and his confidence. You're not finding the fruit of his life coming forth in you. You're not bearing it. That's what, what it means to be barren. That's barrenness. Okay, now why were we barren? Why were we barren is the question we want to ask. I don't believe like this anymore, but most of my Christian life, I believed I was barren because God abandoned me and despised me. And that's why I was barren. But listen, man, we were barren because we were intimate with something whose seed was corrupted and was impotent. That's why it talks about us committing adultery on God. We weren't barren because God abandoned us. We were barren because we abandoned God. And it says we went a-whoring after other gods. And the fornication or our fornication or the thing that we committed adultery on God with, its seed was impotent. And it was full of decay and corrupt. And so it wasn't able to produce fruit in us. And it was only able to leave us bearing thorns and thistles. It's like what God said to Adam in the garden. He says, because you were intimate with your own works, with the strength in your own hand, because you tried to till your own body to bring forth fruit, the fruit of my life, 
because you fornicated with your own flesh and your intimacy wasn't with me, you're only going to bear thorns and thistles. And so Adam was barren. And he was barren because he was intimate with his own works. And so Adam means man in Hebrew. And so it's telling us something about all people. Mankind was intimate with our own works. That's why we love the message of grace. You know, the message of grace is about the work of God. And the reason why the message of grace declares the work of God, because imagine this, the work of God is the only work that can produce life. Yeah. And the reason it declares the message of God's work to give life is so your intimacy can be with God in his incorruptible seed, and the strength in his hand, instead of the strength in your own hand, so that the fruit that you bear might be the fruit of his life, instead of the fruit of the death that's in the world. Right? So we were intimate with our own works, mankind. We committed adultery on our, our maker, and our fornication was, was with something whose seed wasn't living. It was dead, and that left us barren, and unfruitful in God's life. That's why we're barren. We ain't barren no more. But that's why we were barren. So then Isaiah comes and says, why did I put the cap on this? I did greatly err, huh? That's all right, we forgive you. I love Jesus telling the Pharisees that have every scripture committed to memory. You do greatly err not knowing the scriptures. <laughs> What do you mean? I don't know the scriptures. I can recite every jot and tittle. <laughs> yeah, you might be able to, bro, but you don't see the spirit in there. <laughs> so that's where we were. That's why we were barren. And so then Isaiah keeps going. And he says, the Lord called us to himself as a wife who was forsaken and refused in her youth. That's what he says there. Now listen, a wife in her youth. Do you know why it makes the point to say a wife in her youth? The reason why it makes a point to say a wife in her youth is because it's referencing an earthly woman because we're in the earth, so we can have a picture painted for us. And a wife in her youth is talking about a woman being in the age when she could be bearing children. Right? It's when a woman is young that she should be bearing children. Right? And so he says, I called you as a wife that was in her youth when she should have been bearing fruit, unto me, and she wasn't bearing fruit unto me, I called you in that place. That's when I called you. Mm -hmm. That's when I came to gather you to myself. When you should have been bearing fruit unto me, it was that time, it was the time of love, but you weren't bearing fruit unto me, and I called you unto myself in that place. Listen, guys, when the serpent planted his wisdom in the earth by Adam, that wisdom um, began speaking about the value of men and women. And it said the value of a man was found in having male children, right? That a man would have to bring forth male seed so his name could continue, so his lineage could continue. That was man trying to have immortality through his own ability. And so a wisdom came into the earth and said the value of a man is found in whether he has male children or not so his name can continue. Any of you guys ever heard that kind of a thing or seen it on TV? Mm -hmm. You know what else that wisdom also said? That the value of a woman was found in her being able to bear children for her husband. And that same wisdom in the earth said that if a woman couldn't bear children for her husband, then it was a shameful, disgraceful, scornful thing. And if a woman wasn't bearing children unto her husband, when she should have been because it was the age, she felt a heavy yoke on her. She, her womanhood came into question in her heart. She despised herself. And she didn't just despise herself, but she thought her husband despised her also. Yeah. And I know this firsthand because my wife and I don't have no kids. And Becky and I have had many conversations about this. And the heavy yoke that she felt that she wasn't, hadn't bared me any children. Right? And we talked about this a lot. She spent a lot of times crying about it and thinking about it. Right? And we had to talk about that. So I understand that thing really closely. And so that wisdom was in the earth. We could see it with Abraham and Sarah. Right? When Sarah couldn't bring forth the seed for Abraham immediately, she was so tormented by it that she even sent him off to another woman. Go and have children with your concubine. Because at least she's under me, and I can claim them as my own. Ladies, how many of you want to do that? <laughs> no, no, no. 
right? No, 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 no. And we see that Abraham didn't despise Sarah, though. But Sarah did despise herself. It was a shameful thing for her that she couldn't do that. So what Isaiah says there is mankind was like a wife who felt shame over not bearing fruit unto God. We weren't bearing his fruit. We didn't bring forth seed unto him. And so we saw God's face as being hidden from us because we saw that whole dynamic through the wisdom of the world. We saw God through the carnal mind and we judged that we were scorned by God. We were despised by God because we weren't bearing any fruit for him. We saw our barrenness and we said, God must certainly see our barrenness. And if we despise ourselves, certainly God must despise us also. I don't know if you guys realize it, but God doesn't condemn anybody. It's our own hearts that condemn us. And that's what 1 John talks about. Beloved, if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. Right? And if you condemn yourself, you're going to think God condemns you too. I've seen it in my own life with my wife. I might condemn myself for something and feel like I'm a loser or a bad husband for something. She don't care at all. But I translate it onto her. And I live with her sometimes as if she's despising me for my failure. And she couldn't care less. But it's my own heart, right? And so our own heart condemned us because we weren't bearing fruit. And we thought God also despised us and abandoned us because we weren't bearing fruit unto him. So Isaiah comes and says, when we were in this place, God says he was calling us to himself. Yeah. When we were there, God was calling us to himself. He knows that we think he's turned his back on us. He knows that we think he's abandoned us. And what he says about that, he comes and says something about that. You guys think that I've abandoned you because you're not fruitful. You guys have seen my face hidden. And you think my face being hidden is a sign that I've abandoned you, that I've left you, that it's no longer the time of love for me when I see you. That's how you're interpreting your barrenness. And so he responds with that. And he says, listen, guys, yes, for a small moment, my face was hidden from you, but with great mercies will I gather you. Yes, in a little wrath, my face was hidden from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on you, saith the Lord, thy Redeemer. Now, when God says in a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a small moment, it doesn't mean that God abandoned us or that there was a time when God wasn't with us. That's not what he's talking about. And I talk about this a lot in our church and I think I said it last night, but we all have a dictionary in our own hearts. And we all have already decided what the word forsake means. How many of you came in here not already deciding what that word means? How many of you? How many of you? So the moment I say that word, you already drawn a picture of what it means. How many of you spent any time asking God what he thinks that word means? How many? Well, we don't need to ask God. We know, right? <laughs> we don't need to ask God. We know what it means. And so you might spend some time understanding that. We already have a definition of words. And then when we read the text, we read those definitions right into the text. And if you're like anything like me, most of the time, I never stop and ask God what that word means to him or what that thought means to him or how he sees that thought. But I started asking him when he told me to throw everything I knew in the garbage. Right? So it doesn't mean that God abandoned us. If you read the latter part of the verse, what it says is, but with everlasting kindness will I gather you to myself. So he says, in a little wrath I hid my face from you, but with everlasting kindness will I gather you to myself. Do you guys know what the word everlasting means? Without beginning or end. Eternal. It means that his kindness was always present. It, it means that there wasn't a time when his kindness wasn't there. And so the word everlasting is giving shape to the time when even his face was hidden. And what he's trying to say is, you've interpreted my face being hidden as if I despised you. But I hate to break it to you, my face was hidden from you as a symptom of my everlasting kindness towards you and my desire to be a husband to you and to make you fruitful. That's what he's saying. 
His face being hidden was God actually with us, courting us. It was God being jealous over our lives. It was God desiring to be our husband. It was God desiring to be one flesh with us. And it was God desiring to spread his skirt over us. That's what it is. It's a symptom of his love for us. And this is actually throughout the, all of the scriptures. You guys remember what Moses said, show me your glory? And what did God say? You can't see my face or you'll die. So was God's face hidden from Moses? It was, wasn't it? And was it a symptom of God being angry or a symptom of God's love and compassion for Moses? Oh, amazing, isn't it? That's what I say to God. And that's what he says to me. I'm like, it's actually in there. And he's like, amazing, isn't it? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, it's amazing. It's actually in there. You know, guys, if we look at the earthly tabernacle God had Moses built, there's the holy place, then there's the veil, and there's the holiest place. Now, behind the veil, in the holiest place, is the place where the presence of God would come and dwell. Guess what that was known to be? The face of God. The face of God was behind a veil in the earthly tabernacle. And so the face of God was hidden while he was manifesting in the earthly tabernacle, and the earthly tabernacle was a sign of God tabernacling with the Israelites. So his face was hidden, and yet he was there with them, leading them into the promised land. Do you see that? You see his face being hidden behind the veil? And yet there he was, tabernacling with the Israelites. He hadn't abandoned them. There he was with them, and his face was actually hidden. In the letter to the Hebrews, it talks about the earthly tabernacle and the veil, and God's face being hidden behind the veil. And it says the Holy Spirit, it says the reason why God's face was hidden behind the veil is because the Holy Spirit was signifying that the way into the holiest place was not yet made manifest. So he was trying, his face was hidden because he was trying to teach the Israelites about what was the way that could lead them into the holiest place and what was the way that was leaving them not entering in. That's why his face was hidden. He was trying to teach them the way that was unto life and the way that was killing them. That's what he was trying to teach them. The Apostle Paul. These are all famous verses. You guys know in Romans 4 how the Apostle Paul says the law works wrath? You ever read that verse? Mm -hmm. It says the law works wrath. Well, Isaiah just described God's wrath as his face being hidden. Didn't he? Didn't he just describe the wrath of God as his face being hidden? So the Apostle Paul says in Romans 4, the law works wrath. Well, God's face was hidden behind the veil under the law. Well, what was the wrath that was being working while God's face was hidden behind the veil? The wrath that was being working and the reason that God's face was hidden behind the veil under the law is because God was telling the Israelites, the way that you think unto life is actually unto death. That's why it says there's a way that seems right unto man and the end thereof is death. So man had a certain idea about the way that they could enter into the, the promised land and they could enter into the holiest place. And God saw the way that man thought was right. And God said, that way is not right. And in fact, that way is beating and bruising my people. It's killing them. It's leaving them barren. So let me hide my face from that way so I can signify to them that that way is killing them and leaving them barren and unfruitful in my life. That's what he's saying to them. So the law works wrath by revealing that God's face is hidden from the belief that says you can be decorated with the fruit of his life by the works of your own hands. Mm -hmm. That's why his face was hidden. He wanted us to know that way's killing you, man. I can never be happy with you dying. I can never be happy with you having intimacy with your, the works of your own hands because I desire to be your husband. And I know I'm the only one that has a seed in me that can actually produce life in you. And it breaks my heart to think of you being intimate or fornicating with another God that's not a God at all, that doesn't have a seed full of life, but actually has a seed full of death. And that seed is impotent and will leave you barren. It breaks my heart to think of you having intimacy with that and dying. So I've hid my face from that. Yeah. If you read Exodus 20, 20, Moses tells the Israelites why he gave the law. And he says, fear not, God has given this law to prove you that your fear would be 
before him and not in the strength of your own hand so that you don't miss the mark. Do you know what the mark God has for your life? It's for you to live and not die. It's for you to be clothed in the glory and immortality of God. And God saw that the Israelites, no matter how much he tried to teach them, that he led them out of Egypt by the strength of his hand, the Israelites were all the time crying out for flesh and wanting to go back to Egypt where they could work for life. And God's like, but that's the way that's killing them. He says, don't you guys remember when you had to make bricks without straw? Remember when Pharaoh took the straw and they had to make bricks without straw? Do you know what it's like making bricks without straw? Trying to bring forth life without God. And that's what it's talking about. So you want to go back to the place where you're working to bring forth life, yet there is no life there. And so God gave the law to prove to them that the way they were being intimate with was killing them. Yes. Fear means reverence. Yes. It doesn't mean terror. It means where you're re what you're revering as the way unto life. God gave the law to prove to them the thing you're revering as having the power to give you life, it can't give you life and it's killing you. And I'm giving you this law to show you it's killing you, to show you my face is hidden from it, so that your reverence would be in me as the one who will clothe you in life. That's what he's saying there. And so God's actually saying, when you thought you were a wife forsaken by me, I was calling you to myself. Isn't that what he just said in Exodus 20, 20? Isn't isn't God calling you to himself if he's trying to show you the way that you're walking is killing you and he wants you to walk with him instead? Isn't that him calling you to himself? His face being hidden from that system, that way, was him calling you to himself. <laughs> when my face was hidden from you, I was calling you to myself. All I ever wanted was for you to be one flesh with me in my life, but you were missing the mark because you were fornicating with your own works, trying to clothe yourself with life. I hid my face from that belief and the death that it joined to you. So I could show you it could never clothe you with my life. And so you would turn from looking to the strength in your own works. And you would revere the strength of my work to decorate you with life. And you would be barren no more. That's why he did it. You know somebody come and try to take my wife from me? You think I'm going to let that go down? No way, man. Because I know nobody can love Becky like me. I mean, God, obviously. But I'm talking about as an earthly man. And in fact, I, they might have ill intentions towards her. And they might want to hurt her. And so I could never be happy if she left to go join herself to another man. I could never bless that. My face could never shine upon it. I could never give it the thumbs up. And in fact, I would forsake that kind of a thing. And I would hide my face from it. So God wasn't refusing us. He was yearning after us. He was wooing us to himself. He was refusing the belief that we could exalt ourselves unto life by our own works. And we see a perfect picture of this with Cain. How many of you think God refused Cain? What happened with Cain? Cain wanted to be exalted unto life by the fruit he could produce. Yeah. By his own strength. Mm -hmm. That's why it says he was a tiller of the ground. You know, our bodies were made from dust, weren't they? So Cain wanted to be justified by tilling his own body to produce fruit. God looked at that way and was like, you can't be exalted like that, bro. You can only be exalted over death by the blood of the lamb. And he says to Cain, if you offer like Abel, will your offering not also be accepted? You know, when you look at it, the Hebrew and the Septuagint, when it says that, that God came to Cain and said, there's sin crouching outside your door. Go and master it. You know, when you look in the Hebrew, that word sin, it's a four-hoofed animal. And when you look at the Septuagint, it doesn't say sin is crouching at your door. It shows God coming to Cain and telling Cain, Don't, won't you be acceptable if you offer a lamb just like Abel? I brought the lamb. There's a sin offering for you crouching right outside the door. Go and offer it. I've provided the lamb. And so God wasn't refusing Cain. He was refusing the belief that Cain had, that Cain could be exalted by his own works. That's the way of Cain. And God was actually trying to gather Cain to himself. Yes. But Cain 
Cain went away very angry, thinking he was rejected. He was despised. That's where we were. So we committed adultery on God. We joined ourselves to another husband. That husband was death. That husband was abusing us and beating us and leaving us barren. God couldn't bless our union to death. That's why his face was hidden from us. You know, in the scriptures, God's face, and I think I said this last night, but in the scriptures, God's face shining upon something speaks of him giving his approval of it. And his face being hidden speaks of him not giving his approval of something, not giving his blessing, right? He won't bless that thing. He won't give it eternal life. Mm -hmm. He won't say that it is good, right? It's like with the father. When a father gives his blessing for his daughter's hand in marriage, right? The father will give his blessing if he likes the man that his daughter's going to be married to. And you would say his face shines upon it. But if he don't like the man that his daughter's going to be married to, it would be said that he would hide his face from the union. And he wouldn't bless it. And I've seen this in my own life because before I met Becky, she was engaged to another man. And that man was not saved. And that man not only wasn't saved, he was very tormented and he was very abusive. And he was emotionally and physically abusive towards Becky. And they were engaged. You know what Becky's father did when he found out that they were going to be married? He hid his face. You know why he hid his face? He couldn't bless their union. He couldn't agree that it was good because he saw the abuse that was happening to his daughter. And he refused to bless their union. Do you know there was a time where Becky took that offensively? That her family rejected her. That they abandoned her. That they separated themselves from her. But was her father separating himself from her? Or was he separating himself from their union? And why was he separating himself from their union? Was it because he was angry with Becky? Or was it because he loved Becky with an everlasting love? Because he looked at Becky and he saw that she was one flesh with him. And he couldn't think of his daughter being beaten and bruised and abused by this man. He'd rather die than bless their union. So he hid his face from it. But Becky felt like he hid his face from her. But he wasn't hiding his face from her. In fact, the reason why he hid his face from the union is because his face was actually shining down upon her. Mm. Same way with God. God was never forsaking mankind in the sense that we think of forsaking. He was forsaking our union to death. He was forsaking our barrenness. God was with us the entire time his face was hidden from us. He was actually there with us, calling us to himself. Just like we see in the tabernacle. And when you think about God, we all agree God loves us, don't we? We all say God so loved the world. He so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. So if God loves us as much as we all say he does, and we all say amen, I mean all of us in here, we either want to hear about how God loves us, we agree God loves us, or we actively preaching about the love of God. We all agree with that. So how could God's face shine upon our union to death? How could he come and bless it? When we were busy fornicating, how could he come and say, at a boy, at a girl? He couldn't. He couldn't bless our union to death. He couldn't bless our union to a husband that was all the time beating us and leaving us bloodied and abused. Jesus said he came to save those who were beaten and bruised, to bring liberty to the captives. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Forget the anointed me to preach deliverance to the captives. How could God bless that kind of a union? He can't, especially if he wants to be one flesh with us. You know when I found out what that dude was doing to Becky? You know what I wanted to do to that dude? Like I said last night, we're from the murder capital of the world and we're rowdy, rowdy. Listen, 30 miles from me, I got friends that grew up in an area where you had a 50% chance of dying before you were 18 if you were a man. 50-50, flip a coin, you're going to make it to 18. And so we grew up rough. And so when, when Becky 
when Becky and I first went on our date, I didn't know she was engaged. All her friends had also forsaken her union to that guy. They were trying to break it up. And so they set her up with me. And I didn't know. And we were sitting there, and I saw a ring on her finger. And I was like, I can't be dating you. She's like, well, I, I thought you knew that I was married. I, I was going to get married. I was like, no, I didn't know. I said, I, I, I can't be doing, I can't, I just can't do that. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're very, you're very attractive. And like, I already knew she was the one within 10 minutes of us talking. But I'm sorry, I can't do that. Right? You, met, you, you betrothed to someone else, essentially. That union has to first end before you're free to be joined to me. <laughs> it's got to first end. You know what Becky did? She went home and called off the whole thing that night. He threw all her stuff in the garbage can and tore after her. You know what I wanted to do to that guy? The Avenger of Blood came alive inside of me. I said, I might not be her closest relative, but I'm a man. And I want to be one flesh with that woman. I'm about to go avenge her blood and redeem her unto myself. That's what I started thinking inside of myself. So if God desires to be one flesh with you, if he desires to decorate you in the fruit of his life, how can his face shine upon your union to death? Why would we even expect that his face would shine upon our union to death or our fornication with our own works? How could he be happy if we're dying? I mean, how could he be happy if we're all the time barren and unfruitful in his life and we're all the time impregnated with death and the fruit of death? How could that make God, who created us to only be clothed in his life, happy? It couldn't. It couldn't make him happy. He could never be happy with that. So Ezekiel 16 says that God walked by us when we were in our blood. He walked by us when we were joined to death. He walked by us when we were fornicating with our own works, and that married us to death. And do you know what it says God said when he walked by us? He, he said, live also, but he said, it's the time of love. Behold, it's the time of love. And it said he wanted to spread his skirt over us. You know, in the Hebrew, what it means to spread your skirt over somebody? It means to provide them with life. It means to decorate them in the fruit of your life. That's what it means. So God saw us barren and unfruitful and in our blood, having been dying at the hands of our abusive husband. And when he saw us there, he said, it's the time of love. He saw we're only bearing thorns and thistles, and he said it's the time for love. He saw us in our barrenness, and his desire was unto us. His desire was to be married to us. Even though we were barren and in our blood, he couldn't deny the love that he felt in his heart for us. He couldn't abandon the passion he feels for us to bear his fruit. He wanted to spread the canopy of his life over us. He wanted to decorate us in the glory of his life. He wanted to love us all the days of his life. That's what he wanted to do. And he saw we're suffering at the hands of the death that we were married to. And that's why the scripture says he's jealous over us with the godly jealousy. It means he don't want us having another husband. Why doesn't he want us to have another husband? Is it because he's angry? No, he wants to be the husband. You don't want to be somebody's husband unless you love them. You ain't trying to be someone's husband if you despise them. You ain't trying to gather them to yourself if you despise them. You are wanting them in the deepest part of your being. And so God saw us in our blood, and he wanted to be joined together with us. But just like I said, I had a problem when I met Becky, and I wanted to be joined together with Becky. She had a ring on her finger. That means she was betrothed to someone else, and she was not free to be married to me. So unless her covenant or her union or her promise to be joined with this man could be severed, she couldn't be free to be married to me. And that's the same way with God. He saw us married to death. He saw us having a husband that was abusing us. And he said, I'm the only one that can be their husband. I'm the only one whose seed is full of life. I'm the only one that can bring forth the fruit of life in them. I want to be joined to them. I made them to be joined to me. I'm their maker. I'm supposed to be their husband. But God's got a problem. We're joined to somebody else. We're not free to be married to him. <laughs> you guys read Romans 7, right? Yep. 
Okay, well, Romans 7 says a woman is kept by the law of her husband as long as her husband is alive. But if her husband be dead, then she is free to be married to another. But we, Paul goes on to say, we were married to the old man, and so we weren't free to be married to God through the person of Christ Jesus. And so God, what he did was he came in the person of Jesus. Paul says that God was in Christ on the cross, reconciling the world to himself. Reconciliation, we know that word, don't we? Isn't that the word we use between a man and a woman when they had done had a spat and then they come back together? We say they reconciled. And so God's desiring to be married to us, but he's got a problem, we married to somebody else. And so God came in the person of Jesus. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. God was in Christ on the cross, forsaking mankind's union to death. He was on the cross, bringing an end to mankind's union to the body of death. Yeah. And when Jesus cried out, it is finished, what he was actually declaring is that it is finished, Father. We have divorced our woman. We have divorced our beloved from their union to the man that was dying. Amen. That's why when Jesus said it was finished, the veil was rent from top to bottom. Do you know what was etched on that veil that was rent from top to bottom? The cherubims that were guarding the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. When God said we can't let our man eat from the tree of life, lest his union to death live eternally. And so when Jesus entered into the man that was dying and put on the body of death and gave up the ghost inside of that dying man we were married to, he divorced us from our union to death. And that's why the cherubims were moved out of the way, and the veil was rent from top to bottom, and we had free access now to eat from the tree of life. We were free now to be married to the new man, the man that would be raised up in the body of God's immortality, and we could be one flesh with God through the body of Christ. Amen. Oh, man. This guy wants you. I'm talking, you talk about the trouble. I thought I went through some trouble to get Becky. You talk about the trouble God went through so he could be one flesh with you. Mm. Mm. It's like a delicate surgery God had to get right. He had to get it right to sever us from our union to death without us perishing. Mm. So that we could still be married to him. And so the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6 that God divorced us from the sin of Adam and his union to death through the body of Christ. Through the body of Christ. Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law, in the likeness of sinful flesh, in order to divorce mankind from our union to the old man, the man that was one with death, so we could be free to be married to another, even Christ Jesus, the man who was one with God's indestructible life. We were married. That marriage had to end before we could be free to be married with God. <coughs> How did that marriage end? It ended in the death of our Lord Jesus. When he entered into the man that was dying, the man we were joined to, and he died away that man and brought that man into the grave and left that dead man in the grave and came out of the grave a man that was alive. A man that had the life of God. And now, because we were free from the law of our husband, because he died, we were free to now be married to another, even our maker. Oh my goodness. And listen, man, the seed of our maker is potent. It is full of life. I mean, I got friends where it's like, dude, are you guys having another kid? And we'd be like, man, his seed is strong. <laughs> well, you're close enough to an adult. Yeah. Parents, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. <laughs> but that's why we're singing now. Sing ye that were barren. Because we see the seed that is in our maker, who is our husband. His seed isn't dead. His seed isn't full of decay. His seed isn't corruptible. It's incorruptible. And it's unceasing in its ability to produce fruitfulness in us. And that's why we're singing. We're singing because we're free from the law of our abusive husband. You should have seen the way Becky looked at me for like the first five years. And she still looks at me like, you know, I'm the cat's meow. But as we've grown in our lives with God, she's realized that God is her husband, right? 
She's realized that. And so in the early days, she looked at me like I was the cat's meow and she was singing every day because she saw me as the one who set her free from her marriage to the abusive husband. And so she sang daily about it. So sing ye that were barren. We're singing because we're free from the law of our husband, the man that was dying and who was all the time beating and abusing us and leaving us naked and barren and unfruitful in God's life. And we see that our maker is our husband. And we see that we will be unceasing in our fruitfulness because we are one flesh with God through the body of Jesus Christ. Amen. Right? And so now we're skipping... Skip to my loo, loo, loo. Skip to my loo. We're skipping around, man. We're like the Smurfs. We're smurfing, you know? La, 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 la. We're smurfing all around. You know what I'm saying? You ever see the Smurfs get down? They get all happy and they just busy smurfing. We just busy smurfing because we trees planted by the rivers of waters. We're no longer trees that are planted in the dust of this earth that are the dust of this world. We're trees planted by the rivers of water and we will not cease in our fruitfulness because we are not one flesh with this world. We are not one flesh with the corruption in this world. We are not one flesh with the death in this world. We are one flesh with God through the body of Jesus Christ. And that means we have a certainty of fruitfulness and nothing can stop it. Amen. I don't care what goes down. And we see a perfect picture of this of Jesus on the cross. You know, on the cross, Jesus was unceasing in his fruitfulness. Do you know how? He was filled with peace. He was filled with love. He was filled with joy. He was filled with patience. He was filled with meekness. And that death couldn't keep him from bearing that fruit. <laughs> oh, man. Glory to God. How long have I been going? A long time. I should just stop now, huh? <laughs> I think um, I'll just say this real quick because it mentions the Redeemer, Kinsman Redeemer. Everybody knows about the Kinsman Redeemer with Ruth and Boaz. Mm -hmm. But one of the main parts of the Kinsman Redeemer is they were an avenger of blood. An avenger of blood. Mm -hmm. Well, God walked by us when we were what? In, in our blood. blood. Why were we in our blood? Because death was whooping us and beating us and bruising us. So God comes as our kinsman redeemer, and he first comes as the avenger of our blood. He first comes and avenges us from the death that sin was serving us with. And he comes, God was in Christ taking vengeance on the death that was leaving us in our blood. And the reason he took vengeance on the death we were joined to is so he could redeem us unto himself and we could be free to be married to him. That's the kinsman redeemer. He avenged us from the blood that was on us because of death. Amen. <laughs> he didn't like our union to death. And he didn't like what death was doing to his woman. I don't like it. And this is what I'm going to do about it. And he came and bruised death. Sending it far away from us. What does it say? He sent our sin away from us as far as the east is from the west. You could say it just like this. He sent the death we were joined to as far away from us as the east is from the west. That he could come as our closest male relative. You know who our closest relative is? It's God. God is our closest relative. We needed someone to avenge our blood. And we needed someone to redeem us to himself. That's the reproach of widowhood. That's how he delivered us from the reproach of widowhood. He came and avenged our blood. And he came and did a thing because he's our closest relative. And we were dead and we were widowed. And he come and joined himself to us so we could be redeemed unto him. And we could be unceasing in our fruitfulness. And then we would no longer be in the sorrow and the abounding grief of being a widow. But that we would sing that, that we're barren and desolate because our maker is our husband. Hallelujah. Does any of that make any sense? Amen. Well, glory to God. I don't know what I said, but I know I said a lot. <laughs> I know I said a lot because I see the time on there says 8.30. Man, God bless you guys. God bless you guys. Let me just pray 
for all you guys. Do you want to? Yeah, I just wanted to just remind everybody that I have that box back there that Greg is not asking for an offering, but I'm asking that if you would have in your heart to give because he uh, basically came on his own and I want to be a blessing to him and I want us to be a blessing to him. So if you do have it in your heart to do that, go ahead and leave it tonight. And then, of course, Joanna's, you got some going on and tomorrow night. And you're all invited to come to the former Richard and Lindsay Roberts' residence. Uh, Greg is going to be in rare form there again tomorrow night. <laughs> Not rare. And, <laughs> and there will be a light supper at 6 o'clock. And Greg will start in a little bit after 7. And so... So you're all invited, even though I don't know some of your names. Yeah. Do you know where it is? It's right along the chain link fence of ORU, across from Victory, and, uh, and there's a fire station. And the street, there's one little street, and it's called 75th Street, and that side on the west is pasture. So you can only turn to the east. You just come down 71st Street to the stop sign, slow down, because they watch, and then go on through and look for, on the left, ORU's on the right, on the left look for a fence that's wood and then a cream-colored pillar. And as you see that fence, that's the nine acres and Oral's house is at the top and Richard Lindsay's is right in the center. It's a great big two-story. It's like a museum, so it's, it's fun to just see it. So you're all invited. And Gwen and, 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 and her wonderful new husband, they married while I was in Nebraska, and but God brought them together, and isn't it a great union? Yeah. Yes. Amen. Oh Thank goodness. you, Joanna. Yes, yeah. and their lovely home here that they are starting their ministry is just awesome. Greg, this is only the beginning. Amen. In the ministry, and you spoke that last night. I did. Hey, glory to God. I don't know what I said, <laughs> but I do know this: God is the avenger of blood, and God sees all the different ways the world has tried to come against all of your lives. He sees all the areas of your life that might be coming under fire or under torment or under pain or under weakness. He knows. He sees. And I want you to know that God believes that He's greater than those things. Yes. And He believes that He can overcome all of that inside of you right now. Yes. He believes that. He's not confused about whether or not the strength in his hand is greater than the weakness in your body or the weakness in this earth. Mm -hmm. And so we're just going to pray. Thank you, Father, that your faith is present yes. in this place. Thank you, Father, that we have your faith. And since we're here in Tulsa, as Papa Hagen would have said, have the faith of God. We thank you, Father, that your faith is present here. We thank you that you can see into the hearts of all the people here, that you can see their needs. We just thank you, Father, that your hand is stretched forth on them right now, that your hand is resting upon their head right now, that you are anointing them with the anointing of your life. I just thank you, Father, that whatever weakness is in their body be removed from them as far as the east is from the west. I thank you, Father, that your life is inside of them as a river of a living water, and that that river well up inside of them like a raging sea, and that it fill all the dry places, that it fill all the empty spaces, and that it saturate their dry bones with life. I thank you, Father, that you have sold every person in this room to live when you raised Jesus from the dead. I thank you, Father, that you declared that they will live and not die. I thank you, Lord, that even in their weakness, your strength is being made strong right now, that you are hulking out inside of them, and that they will stand up straight, that their crooked back be made straight, that their bones be strengthened with the saturation of your life. Thank you, Father, that you believe that these bones can live. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us, that it's your hand upholding us. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Glory to God. Amen. I love you guys. Thank you so much. And don't forget about the cake. <laughs> <laughs>